whatever it takes to make it possible for someone to just instantly become like this 20x developer, 10x developer, some multiplier developer, we should do that. We should give people this powerful tool. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Today we're talking about EdgeDB with Yuri Salavanov, who is one of the creators, a co-founder of EdgeDB. Yuri, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. We've talked over the years, and this is an exciting time to be talking about EdgeDB because you had your major announcement. At recording time, this is a week ago, but by the time this publishes, it'll probably be six weeks ago. Congrats. Yeah, we did have a pretty great day on Thursday, uh, February 10th. We launched HDB Live on YouTube. You guys can look it up. It's on uh, our HDB YouTube channel. Uh, it was a little bit silly, the beginning of it. We actually were figuring out how to exactly launch HDB and how to make event even remotely climactic uh, 10 minutes before the event. So things that could go wrong went wrong. For example, we wanted to have like an audio track playing along. We are typing like, wake up, Neo, the time is now, HDB is waiting for you. And uh, yeah, the sound was muted. So I think like a lot of people were watching us like at exactly 10 a.m. Pacific time and like it's just silent, slow typing without like any soundtrack. But overall, I think uh, people loved it. And uh, while the event was ongoing, we posted to Hacker News and I think... 30 minutes in, we already hit the front page of Hacker News, and then we quickly rose to the top of Hacker News, to the number one spot. And we've been there for 13 hours, maybe 14. I, I, I mean, I went to sleep without checking, but we were number one around like 11.30 p.m. And uh, yeah, amassed uh, 930 or 40 points, uh, 300 comments or more. Yeah, what was kind of worrisome is that there was no negative comments in <laughs> at all, like just uh, words of encouragement and people being excited. Like I usually see some. Uh... Yeah, Hacker News isn't always a friendly place. Exactly. And this time, like everybody was cheering. So we were super excited about this. That's great. Well, congratulations. I missed the flub at the beginning, but, you know, maybe that lends authenticity. The rest of it, what I did catch looked fantastic. So tell us about what. HDB is, so that the audience is oriented around what we're discussing. Yeah, so HDB is, is a new database, and it's actually not just a new database. I believe that it defines a new category of databases. We call it graph relational. We are coining this term, so don't go to Wikipedia just yet. It will be there, hopefully, soon, uh, but there is no article about it right now. This is a new thing. And it's essentially an extension of a relational model. It's just a couple of things, and we can go over them if you want. But the ultimate goal of HDB is to just streamline the developer experience around dealing with the database to make it convenient. Like, you know, if you have a great tool, it almost disappears in your hand. You, just, you can just perform your task without noticing like any rough edges or anything, just, just like natural extension of your hands, essentially. With databases, it's not like that usually. Like there are lots and lots of things for you to figure out and be super careful around how do you deploy them? How do you write queries? How do you fetch data? What kind of middleware do you need to set up? All those questions, 
they are real and they actually slow you down. And with HTTP, we just want to basically remove all those aspects, like negative aspects, remove the drag essentially, and just give you a tool that can actually speed up your development process a lot by big factor. The name Graph Relational, I think, is kind of new to HTTP. I feel like I, I follow the project some, and I, I think in times past, you've communicated that aspect, but not so concisely. Am I right, Yuri? You've had various ways of kind of describing HTTP, and this seems the most succinct and in some ways compelling. I feel like you may have hit on something. Yeah, I have kind of two things that led us to inventing Graph Relational concept to share. Uh, the first one, Dan Abramov, probably everybody knows him without an introduction. Dan Abramov and I had a conversation about React probably about a year ago. They were about to release a new version of React and uh, he was wondering how we handled Python 2 to Python 3 migration, which was actually quite painful. And after that, I, I, I surely introduced him to HTB. I asked him, hey, let's, let's have a follow-up call. I'll just tell you more about HTB and like pick your brain. Maybe you will suggest me a few things. And he said that when they launched React, first of all, not a lot of people understood what React is, like immediately, like it didn't click with the community like the first day. But then there was this almost random article about how React actually works. And that random article mentioned that, hey, there is this virtual DOM concept that React builds on top of. And then suddenly the community was buzzing. Oh my God, virtual DOM, this is, this is the thing. This is the future. If it's not going to be React, it's going to be virtual DOM for sure. So I have to learn, learn React now. So naturally we started to look like, what is our virtual DOM in HDB? Like what is an interesting aspect? Like how can we distill the value of HDB into something like that is like three words long or something like that? And then just before losing HDB, Elvis, my co-founder and I had a phone call and uh, yeah, we need to write a 1.0 announcement blog post. And that was actually quite stressful because we <laughs> are building this project for like 10 years and it's a huge thing. I mean, uh, a lot of people from time to time ask us like, is this a norm? Well, I mean, yes, it, it does some of the things that Worms do, but it does so much more. Like it has standard libraries on query language protocol, client APIs. The, the API surface is just huge and we are solving so many different problems at once. So what the hell do we tell in that 1.0 announcement blog post? How do we structure it? What do we do? So yeah, we had a conversation uh, with Elvis for a couple of hours, just, uh, okay, let's start from the first principle. What do we actually do at our company? What are we actually building? And then, yeah, can we call it a relational database? Because it's kind of different from a classical relational database. And turns out that, yes, we can. I mean, we always knew that it's a relational database, of course. But just talking it through and distilling the exact modifications that we've done to it laid the foundation for this terminology. And I mean, the initial idea of calling us graph relational was coined internally by our dev advocate, Colin McDonald. And uh, we liked the name immediately, but we didn't quite connect it properly to HTTP ideas. And then before writing this uh, 1.0 blog post, yeah, after having this conversation, it was clear, crystal clear. We're building a graph relational database. This is a new category. Let's define it. Let's open the door loudly and just say, yes, we're building graph relational database. And here's what that can do for you. We should get to the history, we, and we will in a moment. But I suppose part of the benefit of this three-word phrase, as you mentioned, 
is that it's kind of an abstraction layer. It hides all the complexity. There's all this nuance you want to explain about the product and the features, I'm sure. And the React people did as well. But by leading with this phrase, it kind of encapsulates maybe. You, you can define it and it encapsulates all that terminology that you can get to eventually as long as you understand this catchphrase. Yeah, yeah. This name isn't absolutely flawless and perfect because when people hear graph relational, they might be slightly confused and say, hey, so this is a graph database. And I mean, we are not Neo4j. We actually have street schema and we have relational foundations. So we are not a graph database. But conceptually, I mean, when you're programming, graphs is all you work with. Sometimes you don't realize it, but I mean, yes, if you work with objects, those objects are connected to each other. That's a graph. There is GraphQL after all. So yeah, the name actually makes sense. Uh, and I believe this only like slight imperfection of it that some people might think that it's a graph database. I think it will not be a big deal in a relatively short time when people learn more about HDB. Good. Well, take us back. Tell us where this all started, Yuri. 10 years you've been working on this. Is that right? No, <laughs> it's longer than that. Oh, okay. It's embarrassingly longer than that. Well, let's bear it all for a moment. <laughs> so yeah, my co-founder Elvis and I, we met, I don't even know like how many years ago, maybe 13, maybe 14 years ago at a small Canadian company that were building like a lead management system for big companies like Costco, Walmart, etc. And uh, when we met, was V1 of the system and pretty much immediately we started working on a new system, V2, and uh, we tweaked lots of things, we implemented lots of things, it was interesting, it was cool, and then we started working on V3. And for V3, we did something special in terms of programming. Like most of the business logic was designed in a declarative way and the application could be just compiled out of the description. And everything worked just amazingly well. Like we didn't have any bugs. Like we had to actually go and insert some bugs into production just to check that their reporting is working. <laughs> it was crazy. Like we were perplexed. What's, what's going on? Like we were writing this system for a year and like it's just working flawlessly. Like no way, something is wrong. But it was, it was a smooth launch. And back then we just realized, hey, we have this great synergy. We built this amazing tool. It's being used by big companies. So how about we just start a new company and try to build something? And we had absolutely no idea what we're going to build. It was around 2008. And yeah, we started the company. We called it Magic Stack. It was in Toronto, Canada. And yeah, the idea was, hey, let's run this software development boutique shop. And uh, if something great comes to our mind, we implement it and transition to a product company. But we'll start with just software development. Somehow we were lucky enough to have great clients. We worked with the Department of Defense, even though we were subcontractors, but we were working on some projects that were pretty interesting and pretty secret. We partnered with a Canadian company that was doing like behavioral simulations, business simulations for big companies like GE, Microsoft, etc. And we created a game, an iPad game, which simulated like virtual university and uh, led people to kind of discover how to run a university, how to expand it, etc. And it was powered by a super early version of HTTP. And as we were working on products like this and actually shipping them to pretty big companies, we realized that, hey, the internal stack that we're using at Magic Stack, hence the name of the company, Magic Stack, it's pretty great. But the core feature of it is this data layer. And then we one day we realized that, hey, we can actually build a database. We can actually capture the essence of this data layer, generalize it, make it language agnostic, not just like a Python framework. 
And yeah, it will be a database. And your co-founder was on board. It sounds like you initially decided you wanted to work together and you wanted to build something and you were building various things. And eventually you realized that that what you both had passion around or at least expertise in was this core database framework. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was the mastermind behind specifically like all data layer things, like how do we actually compile it to SQL? How do we design our schema? I mean, it was three of us in the core of this project, Elvis, our first employee, Victor and I, and everybody was involved to a certain degree, closer to 2000. 18, I think it was basically three of us working almost full time on HDB. But I think without Elvis, this just wouldn't happen because he had this early insight that dealing with worms is actually quite painful and uh, we should fix it. It's interesting that you acknowledge that the insight was about the problem as opposed to the solution. Eventually, the subsequent insights are various ways of solving it. But the first insight was like, this is painful. Both Elvis and I, I mean, first of all, we are developers. But second, we just hate writing code. <laughs> I mean, we love writing good code, interesting code, but doing mundane things over and over again, it just kills the fun. <laughs> uh, and we wanted to have a, a fun job. So yeah, the, the, the whole idea of this data layer was to basically not repeat ourselves. I mean, if you're describing your model once, you have a description of this model, like your types and like relationships between your types. When you need to create, let's say, a form or a grid, to do data entry or to display the data. It would be silly to just restate all this information just like from a different angle. So yeah, we heavily relied like on metaprogramming, etc. We had some projects that had tens different screens in admin panel and looked incredibly complex. But there was like, I don't know, 100 lines of code in them. And the rest was just declaration files that just mapped your UI and uh, UI widgets to the data model. Everything else was just generated automatically. Those systems were quite impressive and they further reinforced the idea that we are onto something with HDB because HDB just almost encourages this sort of programming. Yeah, so you've been paying the bills for a decade by shipping some stuff to GE on occasion, but ultimately <laughs> building this this data layer. And at some point you decide this is the product or the kind of core idea. And what does that shift look like? We were actually doing lots of other things. Like we were deeply into open source starting around 2013 actually. So we, we used Python programming language. This is our tool of choice and been tool of choice for a long time. And around 2013, a core developer, Brad Cannon, announced that, hey, we, we have this PEP, Python Enhancement Proposal, and it's been uh, around for years. Let's pick it up and let's implement it. Let's let's fix it, whatever. Let's accept it. I saw that announcement. I was actually, I, I knew about this PEP. I was using uh, the API it was describing, and I knew that this API was suboptimal and that it wouldn't actually work. So I picked up that stale PEP and uh, updated it with a better API. Well, uh, yeah, I was joined, basically I joined forces with Brad Cannon himself and with Larry Hastings. He's also a Python core developer. And uh, yeah, we just uh, brought this PEP up to speed. And a year later, I became Python core developer. Around that time, we started investing heavily in asynchronous programming internally at Magic Stack. We had this asynchronous IO framework. And Guido Van Rossum, creator of Python language, also started working on asynchronous uh, programming support in Python. And uh, somehow it all happened that we, the small Canadian consulting company, ended up introducing async await syntax to Python programming language. So yeah, we were kind of going and living and breathing open source for years now. 
So yeah, it was mostly doing our open source Python work on the one hand, on the other hand, supporting ourselves, developing software for clients, and then dedicating whatever time left to HDB development. You mentioned something I want to quickly ask about, and then we'll go back to the rest, but you became a Python core developer. What does that mean? And how does that happen? I imagine there's a lot of people interested in open source that aren't really sure what the mechanics are to become a core developer. Yeah, absolutely. Python is, is an interesting language, actually, because it's not designed by a committee. There is no big corporation behind Python that controls how it's been developed. And there are some upsides and there are some downsides. It's just what Python is. I would say there are about 30, maybe 40 developers of Python language that are just active, that exchange emails on uh, the Python mailing list. Usually it's Python dev and uh, Python committers and Python ideas that write those Python enhancement proposals that monitor our bug tracker, which is bugs.python.org try each box, fix them, review pull requests, etc. All those people usually have a commit bit, so they can just go and commit things to the Python interpreter. And because it's just 3040 and the actual active core is even smaller, everybody knows each other. So it's almost like a club, but it's an open club. And this is very important to understand that everybody actually is excited whenever someone else uh, new joins because managing a project like Python, which is just immense, it's, it's immensely huge, it's complicated. It's number three or maybe now number two programming language in the world. It's just a complicated thing. So whenever someone is active on uh, GitHub or on our mailing lists and uh, starts contributing to the project, usually they are being noticed and you receive an email one day. Hey, I noticed you've been active here and there. How about we promote you to be a core developer? You answer yes. And then there is a poll. We just ask, hey, is everybody comfortable with promoting this girl or a guy to be a Python core developer? If uh, the poll is uh, positive, and usually it is, then yeah, you become Python core developer. There are some perks to that. First of all, yes, you can now commit to Python itself, which is exhilarating. <laughs> You're making changes that millions of people will see uh, and experience. It's, uh, it's a great feeling. But then there are some other interesting things, like uh, there is this conference called PyCon US, and it's a big event. I would say it's about three to 5,000 people every year meeting in one place. And three days before that conference, there is an event called Python Language Summit. And that event is uh, run behind the closed doors. This is basically one day a year when all Python core developers meet and they can discuss the plan. What do we do next? Usually this event is later covered on sites like LWM, for example. Sometimes uh, those like notes and articles uh, leak to Hacker News and other sites. So I think a lot of people know about core language summits, but... Uh, yeah, it's an interesting perk of being a Python core developer. Thank you. Yeah, the not-so-secret secret summit. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so exactly. you've developed this data framework layer you mentioned, but separately, you've also been working on Python. You introduced async await, which is like, that seems like a whole big evolution in Python. Congratulations. And are those related or are they kind of separate threads, so to speak? They are related, actually, in an interesting way. So basically, when we started contributing to Python heavily, we knew that HDB will become a thing. And I think we actually coined uh, the name HDB before 
us contributing async await and then investing in the Python uh, ecosystem. But we knew that it was going to happen. And we knew that the process is going to be painful because no way we can get all the details about the design right from the first attempt. So we knew that, hey, we have this compiler of our query language to SQL and it's pretty complicated. Most likely we're going to be rewriting it several times. So we just had to stick to Python because we wouldn't be able to write this much code and refactor it this quickly if we chose C or even C++ or something like that. So we, we had to be using Python. And for that to happen, we also knew that there are certain requirements to HDB, like it must handle lots and lots of concurrent connections and the cost of establishing a connection to the database should be super low. How do we do that? Well, apparently asynchronous programming is the answer. And uh, we that's why we started investing into it. Uh, and then we were thinking about our client APIs, like how our client API would look like in Python for HDB. And uh, we knew that we have to support the asynchronous clients as well. And uh, back then in Python, the answer wasn't obvious. Like how do you have a transaction block, for example? You would have to basically copy and paste like six lines of code, like try finally create transaction, et cetera. So I just knew that, hey, this is not gonna fly. This is way too verbose. And uh, this is basically how our async await proposal was born because we, we thought, hey, Python has this beautiful feature, a context manager, just say with context, then column, and then you have your block. But there was no asynchronous equivalent of that. So we had to have like asynchronous context manager. Okay, how about async with? And then, oh, if we have async, we can have async await. This is how it all clicked. Then we actually were thinking about performance. Okay, we have asynchronous I.O., but Python is still pretty slow. How can we speed it up? This is how UV Loop was born. And UV Loop is an interesting project. I know that a few years ago when you were browsing Instagram, a lot of traffic was going through UV Loop actually. Facebook picked up UV Loop super early and started using it internally and then in some of the products. I don't know if they still use it. Maybe they are, but the project since then accumulated 8,000, maybe 9,000 stars. It's like a drop-in replacement for the built-in asynchronous core. You just, with basically two lines, you import UV loop and then say UV loop install, and your code just becomes three to four times faster. It works like magic. And yeah, it was created specifically for HTTP because we knew, hey, HTTP must be fast, but how do we do it with Python? Well, yeah, we need to accelerate it somehow. So yeah, a lot of our open source efforts were pretty much dictated by HDB. I mean, there's other approaches to accelerating Python, like Scython or other bindings to other languages. Do you employ other of those tactics? We use them all. <laughs> oh, yes. Anything that can be <laughs> like, done, we do. Whatever can be used. I mean, we have pieces of Rust code in HDB, and uh, with time, we're going to probably rewrite more and more of the core logic in Rust. Now that the data model is settled, now that we understand how do we compile our query language, we know the algorithms. Now we can actually start investing into rewriting the code base in a lower level language. But yeah, we, we use Cython. We compile Python uh, basically to C in many different places and basically all bottlenecks. And I mean, if you just look at benchmarks of HDB, the overhead over vanilla Postgres is actually super low. So HDB is actually quite fast. Python is an implementation detail. People shouldn't notice or probably won't even know it's in Python. And uh, I think we're doing a pretty good job of keeping it just an implementation detail. So at some point, you 
decided EdgyB was going to be a thing and we're working towards it, at some point you decided that it would be an open source launch. Maybe that was already clear. And also a company. You went and raised some money and pursued this kind of in earnest. Tell us how those steps unfolded. We always knew that EdgyB is going to be an open source product. Obviously, after so many years of contributing to Python, we just knew that, hey, it has to be an open source and it has to be under a permissive license. Apache 2, in our case. Around 2018, we realized that, hey, we have to present HDB to the broader community somehow. And PyCon US was happening in about a couple of months. So we just applied to become PyCon US sponsors. We booked a booth and we knew that, hey, our first technology preview has to be released like right there. And we have to just show it to people and uh, see what they tell us. So we printed 3,000 booklets for PyCon, booked a booth, printed like a bunch of swag. And uh, we were actually finishing uh, this technical preview, I think, almost a night (laughs) before the conference opening. So yeah, that was our essentially first contact with the community when we showed HDB for the first time. And uh, the feedback was just super positive. I think we chatted with hundreds of people there and everybody was excited. The conference was in Cleveland. When we came back to Toronto, we just knew, okay, so now we just have to commit like 100% to make HDB real. So over one year, we were just refining everything. We were refining the query language, the data model. We changed a bunch of things, focusing on DX. And in, um, I think, April or May 2019, we released HDB Alpha 1. I think we hit Hacker News with it. And I already met with a few friends and a few fellow Canadian startup founders. So I got some introductions to VCs here in, in the Bay Area. And uh, mid-summer 2019, uh, I started flying to San Francisco uh, every couple of weeks or so, having meetings with uh, people and just trying to race uh, with what we had in Alpha 1. Back then, I was pretty sure that we're going to launch 1.0 like half a year later or a year later or something like that. Unfortunately, it didn't go so fast. We are building a database. It is a pretty serious thing, so it took us longer than that. But yeah, in August 2019, we finally raised our seed round led by Axel and uh, specifically Dan Levine. We incorporated in 2019, I think it was September 25th. Early 2020, just before the pandemics, we moved to San Francisco with a goal to build our network, meet with people, participate in meetups and everything else. And then it was a total lockdown three weeks later. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't the best thing, uh, but we were not alone in this mess. Did you stay? Or? Yeah, we did. We did. Climate is so much better in the Bay Area compared to Toronto, especially during winter time. So... It was pretty enjoyable. I'm glad that we stayed. Good. And after, you know, not six months, but a couple years of work, we're now to the real launch. Yeah. We launched 1.0, finally. After basically two years of just grinding through different issues, small incompatibilities, and just streamlining the DX a lot, we've built a lot of things over the past couple of years. HDB can now be installed with essentially one command. We have great workflows, great tooling. We have fixed lots and lots of little quirks in the query language in HQL, in the standard library. We worked heavily on our client API. So it was definitely a time well, well spent. 
But during this time, we were almost encouraging people not to use HTTP because we knew that, hey, it's a relational database. If something goes wrong, people, businesses can be at stake. So we were, we were always cautious with our messaging. Like, hey, this is an alpha quality product. Play with it. Report back. But don't build anything real with it just yet. And amazingly, I think we actually have had a pretty great core community. Uh, it's hard to put an exact number on it. I would say about 200 people or so. People who installed all those alpha releases, submitted bugs, and uh, yeah, just uh, communicated to us whatever pain points they had. So we were constantly refining the product, going through all those multiple pre-releases and multiple different release stages up until uh, late 2021 when we released RC4 and it was clear, okay, this is time. And we spent about one month of just preparing for the 1.0 launch, updating the website, uh, planning the live launch event, etc. not really changing HTTP itself that much. That's great. I don't know that we've fully articulated kind of the benefits of HDB, so maybe we should spend a moment there. From the launch, I did see some interesting things on video, like uh, making requests to the database, come back with types on the response object is fully typed, which seemed exciting. And how do you describe to folks all the value that's there, which I'm sure is hard to say quickly? <laughs> exactly. It's a list of bullet points, essentially. It's a lot. So first of all, with HDB, you have a strictly typed schema. And we've invested a lot of time to make this schema-first development possible. So first of all, you describe your schema with a high level domain-specific language called SDL, schema declaration language. It's very powerful. You can describe, we call them object types. Object types can link to other object types and have some properties attached to them. Object types uh, can be treated as mixins, essentially. So you can mix object types with each other. That enables composition with HTTP, a composition that is not traditionally possible with any ORM or with any relational database. So now you have the schema, and the schema is just pretty much one-to-one -one mappable to your programming language of choice that feels native to JavaScript, this object model, and feels native to Python or any other high-level programming language. So already you are not internally translating this mindset from objects to tables and relational data. The data, model just, the, the data model just matches what you're working with on a daily basis. And then we have a query language, HQL, and uh, a lot of effort went into making HQL what it is today. If you just look at HQL, it looks like a child of SQL and GraphQL, as someone aptly put on Hacker News. And uh, it's true to an extent, it's, it's a declarative query language. It allows you to fetch hierarchies of objects, just like GraphQL. But what makes it different from GraphQL is that you can write analytical queries. And basically the goal was always to build a database that can actually replace SQL. And in order for that to happen, you cannot just have this one big feature, hey, I can request hierarchies of objects, or I can do that fast. To actually replace SQL properly, meaningfully, and have a shot at becoming like the next big query language, we had to essentially make sure that any type of query that SQL can do, HQL will be able to do as well, including analytical queries, including fetching operations, everything. Like if something is expressible in SQL and is harder to do or isn't expressible in HQL, that was a bug. 
to us. And then we were basically fixing and sometimes redesigning an aspect of the language. So HQL now looks <laughs> kind of obvious. <laughs> like I cannot believe that we spent so many years de- uh, designing it because it's so, so, so simple conceptually now. But yeah, it's core properties that it's composable. So you can just pretty much refactor it, just like pure Python or JavaScript code. You can move things around, you can nest things, and uh, everything just works. And the language has room to grow. Like we'll introduce window functions uh, eventually. Uh, we will introduce group by command in HDB 2.0, which should come out around May 2022. So we'll continue adding those analytical capabilities. But the foundation of HQL is already more powerful than SQL in many regards. First of all, yes, it's composable. Second, you can express multiple different operations uh, in one query, which is possible in SQL, but is extremely cumbersome. Like with HQL, you can just select multiple unrelated pieces of data and receive them back in like one compact object arrangement, essentially, without any need to deduplicate your roles or anything like that. You can insert things, update things, sometimes unrelated things uh, in one query. It's totally pipelineable, essentially. You can combine multiple unrelated queries into one query, and that query will be compiled under the hood to just one SQL query. And this is an interesting thing, because if it's a single query, you don't need like any explicit transaction. This query will be run atomically. So this ultimate composability of HQL, it doesn't actually make it easier for you to write. That's true. But it also makes it quicker to execute for you. Just basically one round trip between your client and server, you can express so much now. And uh, if you look at how ORMs traditionally do this, they usually fire lots and lots and lots of implicit hidden SQL queries, just inflating your communication cost with your database. I'm starting to appreciate just how much work had to go into this because you're right. An alternative to what you did is you could have built the client experience you wanted and then built your own database, but you wouldn't have had all the benefits, the hardening that's come from Postgres. Exactly. And uh, boy, do we use Postgres to its full capabilities. We found, I think, seven or eight bugs in Postgres over the years. Uh, we, we were actually pushing it to its limits. So in order to do this right, we had to get the fundamentals right. And that includes proper data model and the proper query language. And now we started to build more primitives on top of it. So for schema management, you can express your types in your application elegantly in HDB schema, but then you need to evolve your application, add new features to it, right? So you add new types and you change your existing types. This is called schema migrations. So schema migrations are part of HDB. They're just part of the core workflow. Database knows everything about migrations, about your schema, and it can uh, do it like no other tool, essentially, which means that you just learn the workflow of working with the schema once, and then it doesn't matter what language you're using, either it's Go or, I don't know, Elixir or Python or JavaScript, it's always the same workflow. Yeah, it's impressive you call this, you know, an alpha or, or a 1.0. I mean, schema migration sounds like something that I can imagine somebody saying, ah, oh, we'll get to that later, you know, you, you can use it for now, and maybe that'll be in 2 or 3.0. So imp- impressive that you you had such a high bar on on what folks would want. I, I think it's probably going to lend to really great first impressions. Hopefully. And I think, yeah, I think this is what actually happened on our launch day. And uh, in Hacker News comments as well, people mentioned it because it looks like 
a real thing that you can just start immediately building with. Because again, migrations is such a big pain point for users. So if we can get them right, it already elevates the entire offering to a new height, essentially. But this is sort of tip of the iceberg. So, okay, we have a schema, we have a query language, we have migrations, but then we had to think about the client APIs. How do we make them great? How do we make them composable? How do we integrate with TypeScript? How do we streamline the experience of installing HDB on your machine locally or just joining a project that already uses HDB? With our common line tooling, this is just like one command line command. You just uh, type HDB project in it after you git clone your something from GitHub and it does automatically everything for you. It bootstraps the proper version of HDB, runs it, and you can just type HDB and connect to the database. It already has uh, all the types in it and everything is there, ready for you to just start working. So we, we basically were looking at the entire experience of working with HDB. And this is what is so hard to explain when we are talking about HDB. It's not just the, the new data model, graph relational. It's not just the schema or migrations or the query language or libraries. It's all of this. We are trying to reimagine the entire experience of working with the relational database, not just in terms of ergonomics, but also in terms of performance and latencies and quality of service and uh, composability, all of it. And this is why it took us so many years to just make sure that we ourselves <laughs> understand what we are building, what we are capable of building, and how can we balance this 1.0 thing so that it's immediately usable and useful and also serves as this proper foundation for us to just keep evolving things into the future. You mentioned that you're kind of a hybrid between GraphQL and SQL, and it's not even a fair comparison with GraphQL, because to your point earlier, somebody decided, here's what the developer experience could look like, here's a spec, go implement it yourself, and you went miles further where you said, let's implement all the permutations of ways you could interact with this thing and support them. But looking at just the spec, I get the impression that you're kind of taking it in another step further. Like Folks realize the value of some elements of the developer experience encapsulated in GraphQL. And you're saying, okay, and more. And here's other things you would want to do when you request data from a database. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And by the way, GraphQL helped us a lot in the beginning. Most of the core principles of FetchQL, like fetching of hierarchies of objects, we already had them when GraphQL was announced, essentially. But explaining why this is cool was tough. Like at some parties, we were talking to people and they were asking, hey, what are you working on? And we we're like, we have this magical data layer that can do this, this, and that. And they were looking at us with like empty eyes, <laughs> not really following and getting the idea. And when GraphQL was announced uh, a few months later, like everybody uh, knew that, hey, this is a great thing. Potentially it can be used uh, to create databases, not just for stitching APIs together. Suddenly everybody realized, hey, this ability of just fetch uh, an object tree is super useful. And then it became much easier for us to explain <laughs> HDB to our peers. Ah, yes. No, that would be a lot easier. And I suppose it also builds on their other open source projects that have taken similar approaches. I don't know if you feel akin to things like Hasura or DGraph that have also kind of are GraphQL first, some of them relying on Postgres as well. But again, it almost feels like you've kind of continued to iterate and take things further in both cases. Exactly. Yeah, we just continued pushing. And uh, by the way, I love Hasura. I think it's an amazing product. But with HDB, yeah, we just wanted 
to basically see how we can streamline creating of new projects, essentially. Like, what if you had no idea that other databases existed? What if you had no idea that Postgres is a, th is a thing or MS SQL is a, is a thing? How do we take it from there? What would a database look like if it was designed in 2010 or 2020, right? And this is kind of an interesting thing because on the one hand, it allowed us to explore so much in terms of functionality and where we can push things forward. On the other thing, I believe it might be a little bit challenging for us because with HDB, you have to start things new. So it's for greenfield projects, not brownfield projects. So yeah, it's an interesting dilemma. <laughs> Maybe shifting gears a little bit and we should be wrapping up soon. This is one of our longer interviews, Yuri. I'm just fascinated, so I could keep going, but <laughs> I, should be, I should respect your calendar time. Cloud has kind of messed up what we think of as a database to a degree. And in some cases, databases look more like back-end platforms and people start bundling features into so-called databases, authentication, authorization patterns, storage and functions. And do you feel like HDB needs to do some of those things or, or is there a purity to being just structured data storage? I think it has to. It absolutely has to. When we pitch HDB from time to time, the people, we, we say that, look at those big companies like Facebook, Uber, they all have these data layers and those data layers are amazing usually. They, they can do caching for you. They can do querying multiple different aspects and they make people's jobs easier. And this is why Facebook and other companies are able to ship amazing products because they have this data layer custom tailored for their business. And it does so much more than just like, I don't know, a SQL, MySQL library. So uh, we describe HDB as basically being that, being a data platform for you to speed up your development and give you a tool that only big, huge unicorn companies were able to afford before. So we have to go further than just give you an opportunity to create data. People uh, struggle with auth. It's like one of those computer science programs, like naming uh, cache invalidation and auth. Uh, it's always broken. Sign up forms are painful to implement. We have to offer that. And we already kind of go there because HDB provides uh, GraphQL out of the box. Uh, so we already kind of go beyond what a typical database gives you out of the box. We already give you GraphQL. In some time, we'll start adding more integration to our future cloud offering. Just streamlining and just removing the pain points one by one. So yeah, and I'm fairly optimistic about that. I'm fairly optimistic about many things like Wasm, for example. It can be an interesting fit for HTTP. Whatever it takes to make it possible for someone to just instantly become like this 20x developer, 10x developer, some multiplier developer, we should do that. We should give people this powerful tool. Well, it has to be really exciting, Yuri, to be working on something for so long to have had this vision and to be marching along this path for so long and then to have all these people show up and say, yeah, that's exactly what I want. Where has this been my whole life? Which is going back to our very first discussion on this call, the response from Hacker News. I mean, everyone just seemed, like you said, unanimously positive. Never seen that before. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, this was great. Let's just uh, hope that we'll be able to continue building on this gradually and continue finding this way of presenting HDB and actually explaining what it can do for people. Because again, the product is just big, it's huge, and it changes so many things. 
we do about software development. So yeah, I hope that people will be encouraged to spend some time, check it out, get familiar with it, and start being excited about HDB. Good. Anything we didn't cover today you wanted to discuss? Um, and if not, maybe you can tell people how they can get involved or kind of the state of the product, what they can look forward to. I'll say a couple of things. First of all, check out HDB. <laughs> you don't have to build a production system with it, but uh, you can you can at least check it out and uh, start using it. Maybe you can introduce it in your company, automate some microservice with it. I don't know. It's a database. You can build so many amazing things with it. We will launch a cloud version, a hosted version of HDB, hopefully in May 2022. Maybe it's going to be just free tier, maybe something more than that. But this is our goal, at least. We're working hard, all hands on deck, on just making this hosted version of HDB a reality. And second thing, because we spent so much time talking about Python and the open source ecosystem, I would like to just encourage everybody to just go and contribute to Python. It's an open source project, not really baked by any big company or corporation. It runs by volunteers, essentially. So if you ever are annoyed with Python that something is poorly documented or something isn't working properly, file a bug, submit a pull request. That's going to be amazing. And if you do a bunch of those, uh, you'll be promoted to a Python core developer. And uh, it's an amazing thing to be. You heard it here, folks. Yuri has given you the path to stardom within Python. Thanks so much, Yuri, for coming on the show today. And thank you for the gift of EdgeDB that you've given us over the last decade. And the world is finally getting to appreciate all the wonder. Oh, thank you for kind words. find today's show notes and past episodes at contributor.fyi. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.